Welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Comedy on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app to your smartphone so you can stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. Can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today, and... Um, what a high honor it is as I continue to trace back the lineage of rhythm in music, melodic music, instrumental melodic music. Uh, it's always invigorating to speak to people who were creating on this earth before I was even birthed. And uh, my next guest is somebody who came up in the heartland of, you know, in Indiana um, and was a bebop freak. But um, at the end of the day, um, sort of allowed things to come to himself didn't necessarily force the issue and wound up playing with some of the most uh, titanic musicians that this country has ever seen. And uh, we connected on Facebook and sure enough, got a hold of him and he was up for it. And now we get a chance to hang. Joe Hunt, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hi, Jake. Good to be with you. Good to be with you, man. Um, you know, um, we led in there with uh, summertime off... Um, uh, gets a go-go uh, with uh, Chuck Israels, yourself, and Gary Burton. And um, a while back, I was commissioned um, to do interviews for a Stan Getz documentary, and I was delighted to discover that you spent a lot of time playing with Stan. And um, unfortunately, the doc has sort of been uh, on standstill, but um, the truth is that Stan was totally a genius and totally crazy and, and insane. Um, and I kind of wanted you to talk about um, that nexus in your mind of genius and addiction and how it played out in the form of jazz and the community of jazz in the 50s and 60s. Uh, great. Well, uh, Stan, Stan was wonderful. What a terrific, I mean, amazing talent. And uh, we got along pretty well. I was with him for a year and a half. And uh, it, was, it was a real honor to have worked with him. It was a really nice band with uh, Gary Burton and uh, Chuck. And, uh, anyway, about this nexus, uh, we talked yesterday about Indiana yeah. and John Pierce and some of the earlier stuff in my life. So I guess I could sort of start there and go back historically. Go ahead. Uh, also here. Harold Jones, who you interviewed, I I did hear the uh, interviews and I hear him spoke about me. <laughs> what do you think about it? It was funny, right? It was good. <laughs> it cracked me up. Oh man, I, that's what my show is all about, man. It's just bringing people together, making people smile. Yeah, that was funny. Yeah. But uh, Harold was, uh, as well as you know, a tremendous talent himself, and uh, he always had a great swing. And uh, funny, I can tell you a funny thing about he and I how we. I don't remember how we met exactly, but he's a year or two younger than me, but uh, we were sort of neighbors living on the same side of town in 
Richmond, Indiana, and um, somehow we met. And uh, I had just started playing drums. My dad had bought me a set, and I used to take my drums to his house every weekend, and we would set our drums up facing each other. Wow. And uh, and we would listen to records. Uh, in those days, it was like 78s and 45s, you know. I think the LPs were just coming out or something. But anyway, we'd, uh, <laughs> first we'd listen. We'd listen to Gene Krupa or, uh, or Max Roach or... Uh, somebody buddy rich you know or, sure and then we would we would pretend we were that person like one week i'd be uh buddy rich and he'd be max roach or something <laughs> like that you know and then the next week i'd be joe jones and he'd be gene krupa whatever you know and we'd imitate these guys and and we were you know we were uh, ma- we were maniacs we loved it we just lived for saturday when we could go and play together you know and, uh, can I ask? Can I ask you? A, I want to ask you a question. I, this is so important because you yeah. like. I mean, I've interviewed guys like David Garibaldi, you know, from Tower of Power, and um, he was doing oh, yeah, great he, drummer. Great. Good I mean, drummer. like like Rich Richard Quintanall and him did the same thing. Um, they'd have these drum battles, but the, here's the, bo- the, the, the like you waited for Saturday. Obviously, you idolized these guys, but. Was it something, there was like this Zen thing where it was, you, you could actually be in, in the honest moment at that time when you were playing? Like, can you just talk about the piece that you guys, because I mean, you didn't have all these material, even the, the impoverished today have material goods for distraction. And you guys, this was, music's, the significance of music and the spiritual quality of music was at such an all-time high in our culture. And I just wonder... If maybe you weren't aware of it at the time, but you recognize that this gave you guys peace. Well, I don't know if it was all that deep. We were just a couple of kids. Just bashing around. Yeah, no, I get it. I'm looking back, I'm saying, looking back, you know. I mean, we could, we could have been working on hot rods or something, you know what I mean? Like the rest of the kids were, you know, they were crazy about cars and all. But sure, Harold that's and right. Me, we, we, we loved our drums, you mm-hmm. know, and, and we, were, we, we, did, we didn't really know what we were doing. I mean, we were listening to these records, which we loved, and we weren't getting lessons from, no one was showing us anything. We were just figuring it out for ourselves, which is kind of amazing, actually. And, uh, mm. and it, to, Harold, to Harold, I don't want to ever criticize him, but Harold wasn't particularly hip in those days. I mean, I was a little hipper than him. Oh, dude, he said you were the hippest cat in the world. Just for the record, the audience out there, Joe Hunt and John Pierce and those cats were wearing sunglasses at night, which is something I don't even do. And I can't even do that, dude. That's so cool. Yeah, I know. Yeah, no, go ahead. Harold wasn't the hippest cat, yeah. I mean, I I got my whatever hipness I had, I got from another older friend of mine uh, named Ronnie, uh, Ronnie Vioni who lived in my neighborhood and he wasn't a musician but he always knew the best records and stuff so he hipped some of us cats in the neighborhood where we lived and then in turn you know like Lee Konitz and uh, Stan Getz and Miles Davis he was into this stuff you know and he would put us onto it wow. uh, the, wow. the, some of the other kids you know and then I would put Harold onto it so you know being a couple of years older than Harold I was sort of a, like a mentor you know, for that part of it. But Harold always had a great feel and a great swing of his own. I mean, he didn't need to be taught anything, you know. But the uh, the hip factor, I think I might have helped him along a little bit. But uh, Can you, can then, you, uh, yeah, then, you go, yeah, I just, I just, this is, I just, for the, for the doc, for that documentary, I interviewed everybody from uh, Huey Lewis, who Stan played with. A lot of people, Huey's dad used to take, Huey's dad was a big band fanatic, so he used to take Huey to, uh, a lot of Stan get I think Woody Herman concerts. It's maybe maybe a little bit later than that, but I mean David Amram, a lot of people, um, Buell Neidlinger, a lot of people in the fifties, and they talked about this. Anyway, this I just wanted you to talk about how you navigated this nexus because uh, I mean it, it was it's fair to say that I think it's fair to say that that a, a large part of the jazz community um uh a lot of people saw bird as a junkie and they said well if if he can play like that then i i gotta be a junkie too and so they a lot of people got hooked on it and then i talked to other people who you know say that that they they were completely sober the whole time and and the truth is that that um 
you know, what did you ever feel like there was an exclusive kind of club in bebop as it related to like whether you were on junk or not? Yeah, yeah. Even as a kid back in those days with Harold wow. and stuff, when we were like teenagers, some of the older guys were smoking weed, you know. Sure. And uh, that that seemed to be kind of a, a symbol, you know. It's like a dizzy uh, thing, right? A dizzy was smoking a lot, yeah. Well, yeah, uh, it seemed to be kind of part of the thing, you know. And I tried it. I I, I never could get into it. I always got paranoid and scared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That, that's part of the yeah. That that ha- but that's marijuana. But I, I mean, I mean, I'm talking more like yeah. the, the harder. So anyway, continue on. Uh, the there was always that kind of well, that yeah, yeah. That I mean, there was that I recall. But it's relatively harmless, you know. Uh, right. But then the, when you get into the harder drugs you know it's it's uh, it's so easy to slip into that you know when i was in new york i had a round of that myself it's just so easy because you know it's so accessible and and you know if you're down and all of a sudden you know you can sniff something and you're up you know that's right (laughs) that's right yeah it really works so i mean it's very dangerous you know for for people in our career Uh, and uh yeah and i think i it's before my time i mean i was listening to the records but i you know i read as you have uh, different biographies of bird and people where you know heroin was a really big part of their of their lives and 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 drinking too you know like uh Perez Lester he was an alcoholic you know uh, I mean Jesus I, I mean, think that yeah absolutely in the, in the, I think in the 20s you know in the, in the early days in the 30s it was alcohol and then in the 40s it became it became heroin you know and cocaine and so on well like all the I mean the four brothers I mean um, the, Al Cohen, uh, can't. I'm kind of drawing a blank right now. But I mean, the Woody Herman's band; those guys were smacked out of their minds. I just, it just, it, it's for somebody that that, like, I know enough about Stan to know that um, uh, he was like a, you know, there, the, you know, that was he was a bunch of nice guys. I think uh, Zoot Sim said that, and because yeah. you, you, I mean, yeah. and and you know, I've interviewed guys like Bill Crow, who talked about Stan basically bringing four women to a gig, all of them believing that they were with him, and then um, you know, basically going up during intermission during, and and hitting on the bass player's wife. I mean, the guy was insane, and and some of that had to do yeah. with do with the drugs. But I'm just saying, you're still here. Uh, Steve Swallow is still here. I mean, Swallow said that the generation before yours decimated themselves uh, with drugs, and 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 I just wanted to know if you felt if there was a definitive moment in your life when you made that choice to say, "I want to live." You know, I don't want to. I don't want to be. I I, I want to be able to see. I want to. I want to live. Oh yeah, I've had a couple of them. <laughs> I mean, yeah. If you yeah, want to, I mean, that sure. part of my show is about adversity. So if you want to break it down, I guess, I guess, I guess what I wanted to talk about, though, you know, historically, sure. just was is, is going back to those early days of mine. I came from this uh, small city in Indiana, Richmond, and uh, talk about the great roots of Indiana, you know, and uh, like you were saying, this the, how this stuff kind of started, you know. Sure. Um, but. Uh, there was a fellow in our in our hometown, John Pierce, who uh, who we talked a little bit about yesterday. He was who was our teacher, and he was an amazing cat, just an amazing cat who who had a tremendous. He was like a Pied Piper of jazz. <laughs> so you know, guys like Harold and me, we didn't know what the heck we were doing. We were just having fun and enjoying it. Her- actually, Harold took drum lessons from a guy who I didn't. I tried to take one lesson and I didn't dig it, so I quit. But <laughs> <laughs> Harold, Harold. <laughs> he had me playing anchors away or something you know and uh, i didn't dig you it. weren't into but, it yeah. but harold said i was into max roach right. he wanted him to teach me what max was doing and he couldn't do it you know so but <laughs> hard to <laughs> do yeah anyway this guy john pierce was our was our teacher and what he he taught me piano lessons uh, sort of i went we all went to his house every sunday and uh, and I and this this replaced for Harold and me. This replaced our drum jams, and we went to John's house on the other side of Richmond, on the west side, and he would host a jam session every Sunday afternoon. His wife wasn't happy about it. He had a wife and kid, and the the, the wife was was not. She was sort of drugged by the all the music and the cats coming into her house, but she she allowed it. 
and uh, man, there was some great sessions there at John's house. Oh, Bird. That's where that, that's where we learned. We learned about Bird, and he played Bird records for us. And uh, then we he, he had us sing along with the records, you know. Wow. And, and so we were all being trained in like sort of a jazz soul fed, you know, to sing the bird uh, heads of the bird records, you know, so we could all sing them and learn them. And then we played them, you know, and then John would show all of us who were willing to take the time, all of us, he would show us piano voicings. He called them changes. So we learned changes from John, you know, these, these uh, fingerings, you know, to play chords. And and not only us, but he was a private piano. Uh, I'm sorry, private saxophone. Well, music teacher at a music store, and he taught all of his students. Maybe he'd have an accordion student who didn't know anything about jazz, right? And he'd teach this kid changes on the accordion, you know. And then he'd play his clarinet or his alto with the student at the lesson. Wow. He was like a, a tremendous influence to teacher to to all all who you know, who, who knew him or, you know, came in his uh, contact. So John was a, was a huge influence on, on all of us and a wonderful, sweet man uh, in addition, you know. Uh, so his, uh, his uh, mentoring was so important for that particular group of players. And uh, one fellow in, in particular, Paul Plummer, the tenor sax player, was his protege. And Paul went on to play with George Russell and... Uh, uh, he, he had a kind of a short career, but uh, the career he had was, was, was amazing. He was another prodigy of saxophone. But anyway, uh, that was very important in, in our hometown. And then from that, you know, we began like uh, Harold. Uh, there's a story about how his mom drove him to Indianapolis to play with Wes. And uh, I also played with Wes one gig. And, uh, you know, we, we went to Indianapolis, and that's where the, we moved up a notch because there were some amazing, just tremendous, mostly uh, black musicians in, in Indianapolis who were terrific. My God, you played with Wes? I did, Can yeah, you talk about that experience? Street. I mean, that, that, that dude was like a, a welder, and he had like eight – I mean, I don't know. The whole thing was just – it just doesn't seem like it was real. Well, they they were wonderful, uh, wonderful giving people. Wes was much like John Pierce, a very sweet man with a big heart and a huge, broad smile. And, you know, I mean, these guys were like, you know, Santa Claus, man. You know, they were <laughs> this so is unreal, beautiful. man. God, Jesus. I mean, they were. They I know. Were, I, I believe it. I believe it. N- not a mean bone in their bodies, you know, and just giving wonderful people. You know, Wes had a whole bunch of kids, I think, and he at a railroad gig or something, I don't know, or a postal gig, I'm not sure. No, he was a welder. He was a welder with eight kids. Was was that right, a welder? But, I mean, you know, just sweethearts, sweethearts. And if if you, you, well, I I, I got a funny story how I met Wes. Yeah. So, anyway, Harold and me started going to Indianapolis, which was about 60 miles due west of our hometown, and to you know to to move up a notch to hear guys in person like Wes and so on and to I studied music with a wonderful drum teacher named Willis Kirk, and I took drum lessons uh, in the summer of '56 before I went to college at Indiana in that year, at Indiana University. But anyway, uh, we we were heading to Indianapolis more because there was more stuff happening there, and we got to hear some of these great musicians there. Um, and then, you know, um, I don't want to get off into my biography so much, but just to talk in general about that scene, it was just a tremendous bunch of musicians, you know. And, uh, and, and my recollection is there wasn't a big dope scene happening there, you know, uh, particularly. A couple of guys might have had an issue, you know, but generally it was pretty, pretty straightforward. It was about music, you know, and swinging and, and learning tunes and, and playing together good, you know. And they play you know i you know this is this is the reality because this show i mean i know you're just getting hip to it but it's it's a non-linear thing so i don't want you to think that we have to go in chronological order it's just okay (laughs) and we're just we're just you know the thing that you know we just lost uh gary barone uh, the great trumpet player he passed away yes yes (laughs) but you know this is what he and this is so essential this is what pierce did for you and this is what, uh, you know, essentially uh, 
Barone was talking about going to these uh, country club gigs, or his dad would put him on a gig, and the key was for the what you guys had that I think is sorely lacking with with younger cats is that you know you under you you knew standards, you knew the melodies. The melodies were essential because it's, it, because improvisation, even as a drummer playing melodically on the kit. Um, improvisation comes from theme and variation off of those melodies. Eventually you learn the melody and then you get bored of the melody and you want to create something off of that. So you guys were already steeped in the bebop. You were steeped in the American songbook. And then you, you knew those melodies so well that you were able to stretch off of that with theme and variation. That's the old school way of improvisation. And ultimately, because there were no jazz schools and there were no Pat Martino books and there were no John Abercrombie books and there were no you know, Terry Bozio books. Everybody was just kind of figuring it out for themselves and they came up with their own individual sound. So for Joe Hunt, you know, I'm curious about how you feel you developed your own individual sound. Well, I, uh, that's kind of another story. Uh, but uh, Just, I, I was just go there, yeah. To go to, I, uh, to, go to, uh, to uh, Indiana University and uh, my, uh, my parents, uh, you know, supported me there and uh, I lived in a dormitory and I'd stay there for three years and I studied classical music and percussion you know wow. and that was a uh, wow. and that was really super because uh, IU the university was only about 30 40 miles south of Indianapolis so it was a uh, real easy to get back and forth and uh, man I mean that was just remarkable luck for me because when I got there as a freshman some of the cats who'd been there before who had the good gigs had graduated, you know, so um, I got to play with some of the best cats, you know, David Baker, that's where I met David Baker wow. and uh, Larry Ridley, the great oh bass, Larry God. Uh, Ridley. Just ridiculous. Uh, Dude, we Baker, were, uh, Baker is we, a badass too. I can't, he was old. Yeah. Go ahead. Continue. Oh, Baker was remarkable, yeah. just remarkable in every way. And another, another mm -hmm. version of John Pierce, times 10 or something yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, anyway uh, and west i mean those guys are all giants man. they're giants you know and uh and, and and eager to teach eager to show and and help help others you know and show you the changes and whatever you know so david put up with me i joined his band and uh, uh man it was a great band we had all these young cats from indianapolis you know uh freddie hubbard and uh, uh virgil jones and uh like the guy I was talking about, Paul Plummer, John Pierce. John Virgil Pierce. Jones? Virgil Jones was from Indianapolis? Yes. Oh, my God. That yes. place was a breed. I mean, I know later on, um, like guys like Phil Randlin, the trombone player. But, yeah, Freddie was, Freddie was there. and uh, James Spaulding, great alto player. Gee, Spaulding and Rhythm. This is, I mean, what a breeding ground Indianapolis. So, so do you, I mean, is it fair to say that because – uh, Go ahead. No, just I mean because the, the teaching was so organic, it was so, and they were so willing to do it. But ultimately, do you feel like because musical vocabulary was being built on the bandstand, that you kind of had the freedom to develop your own? Everybody had their own individual. I mean, I listen to your drumming; it's it, it sounds it sounds different than Joe Porcaro or or Pete LaRocca or Max. I mean, everybody had their own individual sound, and the problem with melodic improvisation today is that there is a there's a homogenization of sound i can't even tell who anybody is so yeah. i just wonder why yeah. th there was this i mean i just know going back to garibaldi for a minute that when he was playing these jam sessions uh in san francisco people come up if they said to him man you sounded great you sounded just like so-and-so he'd want to slit his wrists he, he nobody mm -hmm. wanted to sound like anybody else and i just that fierce streak of independence maybe wes was teaching you maybe joe pass was teaching dennis coffee but you know what the the overarching mm -hmm. message was be yourself well yeah i kind of my my feeling on that is uh uh jake you you can't help but play yourself i mean you have to try i mean it's just how, what do you think no i i don't think there's a writer i think i i want to i want to know your i just feel like today there's just, yeah. um, I think that... Well, today it's the same. It's no different today in some ways. I mean, you know, I think today we have another, another um, what do you call it, a, uh, another ball game in that, in that, that we live in the age of, of uh, the, the technical revolution, you know, the digital revolution. And so it may be a different kind of voice 
you know. I just I just know that the, that the amount of theory that kids the, the the balance between practical application on the bandstand and then learning in the classroom uh, is fundamentally stifling. And then la labels and music, oh, yeah. labels and music. Oh, also, you're right. You know yep. th those. You're I'm just right. yeah. yeah. I'm Absolutely. just looking for Absolutely. the only. I want, and maybe it's naive, but the only way for. Charlie Purse have told me, and to be honest, Joe, I mean, I'm coming up on my nine-year anniversary on the Jake Feinberg show, so it's so, such an honor to have you. But Purse have told me seven or eight years ago, I mean, this is how cryptic it is, that in, you know, we, that in order to have a renaissance in, in music, we'd need a complete collapse of civilization. And that's, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not, I don't want a complete collapse. All I'm saying is you can hear the students that come out of these schools today they sound exactly like their professors. There's there's this attention right. to having to master. Okay, learn these Charlie Parker tunes. Learn them in all twelve keys. And once you, you know, and in the past it would be, they're just suffocated with theory. And the point is that you guys were. I mean, you listen to John Pierce playing. It's. I mean, he clearly had the rudiments, but the guy was like playing as if his life. To, there was an urgency to the music. All the music you play, there was an urgency to it. You know, and that's, that's true, a, yeah. you know, and and, and 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 that speaks to. So the the thing is, when you started to play, um, and there's no right or wrong answer, Joe. I mean, I'm just asking for you know, because I, I think I want the younger. My daughter is an amazing. Sac I mean, I listen to her playing upstairs. And I'm like, she's great. She's she's going to do it. She also listens to you know George Russell and Stan Getz and you know, John Pierce, and so she, her ears are wide open. But I feel like. Um, I wanted to ask you this, this is a very important point, is that did you learn, did you and Harold and Pierce, or even when you went to school, did you learn by ear first before reading the music? That's also an issue today with younger cats with their ears being locked because they're learning tunes by reading them first as opposed to learning them by ear. Yeah, that's a good point. You're right. And you're also uh, right about the uh, the school business. Uh, yeah. I think we're we're. I mean, I I, I can't complain because I taught at Berkeley College for 30, thirty years. Yeah. And I was, you know, I'm part of the problem, I suppose, in a in a sense. No, no, no. But, you're, you, uh, you were you, you were know. singing for your supper. I'm just saying it's when. Well, you, but yeah. but I mean, but the schools are not. You know, we overemphasize, like you said, the reading and whatnot, and the and the the jazz ear training or whatever it is. You know is sort of secondary i think you're right about that but uh, i got a quick one for you go ahead then. In, 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 uh, to to sort of counter charlie's uh charlie by the way he's one of my heroes oh my charlie god Persip. i mean joe hunt and Persip, and he, i could go to i could go to heaven he's the yeah just let me greatest big band drummer ever <laughs> nick nick Ciroli was pretty ridiculous too i must say nick Ciroli was ridiculous oh yeah another yeah. great drummer. i was listening but, to him with stan charlie kenton Persip yeah would, but Persip with uh dizzy's band Oh, oh my goodness. forget it, forget it. That's like Harold. That's like Harold with Basie. <laughs> Dude, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a Harold and, and Freddie Green, man. Oh, go ahead, man. Go ahead. Yeah, so what was the... Uh... Well, I was, I, was, I was forget what I was going to say. So you oh, had a, I, you I had a, a story, quick, yeah. Quick, a quick quick remedy for you. Go ahead. This is what we get. We get away from this, you know, in today's life. But I teach. I still teach. Sure. Right? And I, I teach in my house for a really interesting school nearby in Arlington, uh, that I'm very uh, fortunate to work for. And the uh, director of the school is a real good uh, musician, bassist, and uh, started a school for amateurs. And these are people who are not students per se. They're not interested in becoming professionals. They're just people from all, all sorts of backgrounds who, who never did study music and, and always kind of wanted to. I right? did, yeah. This is so, brilliant. We need I about 900 of those schools. I'm, well, I mean, I've had... I just started doing it maybe six months ago, and uh, one of the classes didn't work out for me, but the other one's working out pretty well. And they're and Jake, they're total beginners. These right. are people who are beginners. Right. I'm teaching them digging for Diz. I'm I'm like John Pierce. I'm showing the piano player these changes that John <laughs> always wants to play drums. This is my neighbor. So I said, hey, why don't you buy a set of drums? I've been teaching her drum lessons. Man, she's got a beat like fucking Art Blakey, man. You know, <laughs> dude, it all it all comes full circle, man. It was like you. It's like Pierce. Yeah. It's I mean, unreal, it's, man. It's beautiful. It, That's beautiful. She didn't. She doesn't even want. She didn't want to do it to learn jazz. She's uh, she likes rock sure. and stuff. She likes you know. She just wanted to you know 
play stuff like the Rolling Stones or whatever. But she's got this great jazz beat, you know, that she didn't even know she had. Wow. And uh, I had a woman bass player who just started studying, you know, and I showed her bass lines, and we learned the cycle of fifths back to John Pierce lessons, you know. And she started Pierce. walking, she, and the two of them together, man, they set up a field that my wife, who's a really good pianist herself, came back from work one night teaching, and she walked in on this ensemble. She said, holy cow, these guys are swinging, you know. <laughs> they're like total amateurs, you know, because they 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 haven't studied, they haven't. No one showed them what they have to do. They're just enjoying themselves, and they're playing very basic stuff that they can manage, and they're playing good. There you go. You know? There, and that's and the, and that's the the and then just the th- I know we're just I mean because we're only in set one here with Joe Hunt and we're on fire, but it's like you mentioned the technological revolution, but. When I interviewed, this is the other issue um, with homogenization. Because, I mean, rhythm is love. Human rhythm. Everybody has their own heartbeat. Your neighbor has this jazz beat. She's got a great beat. I find myself on on the conga drum or playing drums with my friends. And, you know, we're playing rock, blues stuff. But that four-way coordination starts to cook. And all of a sudden, you've left your body. And it's because it's human. But then you have, like in my interview, I did a couple interviews with Rick Murata. And, you know, he's sitting in a room. And he hears something, he hears these drum beats going on in another room. And he goes, that's got to be a machine. And he walks in and it's a human being playing to machine parts. That's the danger. Mm. That's the danger that Persip's talking about is that if younger cats, and I'm just talking about a sociological point of view, that if younger cats cannot detect humanity and authenticity and rhythm, in their ears, then we are in a lot of trouble because that's that quantized rhythm. When you were coming up, it was like a big round ball. I mean, Burton, Burton was a percussionist on the vibes. You were there. I mean, everybody, it was round. And now the quantized rhythm, it's just up and down real straight. And if you, if those digital beats are being crunched into people's ears, um, it's, I'm not, saying i don't want us to go over the cliff i'm just saying in order to build musical vocabulary we have to get back to kind of what this arlington school is about which is allowing people to be themselves and not doing what they are supposed i'm not saying abandon the the pet the 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 pedagogy or anything like that or the or the you know the the academia but there has to be a better balance because ernie watts and dick burke and jan hammer and gene pearl and all these guys i've interviewed they were all playing their asses off in college. They weren't in a, I mean, they were in a classroom, but they weren't. You know, Mark Levine would go to right. Jack, Mark Levine would go to Jackie Byard's house. Jackie mm-hmm. Byard would say, hey, you know, um, let's play Cherokee in all 12 keys. And, you know, Mark Levine, they'd start, he'd fall apart at D. And then Jackie would say, okay, well, now you know what your homework is and I'll see you next week. <laughs> and, you know, it was just, it was like, and then on top of that, he's playing salsa in a salsa band with Don Elias and Gene Perla. So I'm not trying to be nostalgic right. in any way. I just, I am obsessed with new musical vocabulary. And I guess I asked Joe Hunt, what, what do you think is necessary in order for musical vocabulary to grow? Well, I think it's already in progress. I mean, you know, uh, it's, I think we got off track somewhere with uh, with virtuosity, you know. Right. And uh, virtual virtuosity is 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 important, and I wouldn't. I'm not going to be the one to say it's not it's not uh, worthy, you know. When you've got a drummer who shows up. When I got out of the army in 1964, right before I joined Stan's band, uh, Tony Williams had come to New York. And he scared the crap out of everybody, including me. <laughs> I mean, you know, what, what's left? He was playing stuff that I'd kind of thought about, you know, but he's playing it and beyond, you know. So when you hear that kind of virtuosity, it's really, it's very, very uh, scary if, or if, you're, if you're a musician, you know, playing the same instrument. But at the same time, it's, it's, uh, it's as it should be, it's encouraging, you know. And it's uh, it gives us a standard to to strive toward, and so you know we know this is true, but there's a backside of it when when drumming or not drumming, but when when music play paradiddles backwards and forwards. If that's your goal, then you kind of miss the boat. You know, absolutely. It's not to say that vir- that virtuosity is not important, and and not a not a. It, it's not only important, but it's those are the people like the Scott LaFaros and the Tony Williams, you know, 
that that we look toward, you know, that that my God, that can happen, you know, that's possible. But Tony, they, they, they and, the, and that and that is true. But the uh, the, you know, I, but but but, yeah. but back, back back backing off. This woman across the street from me, right. my neighbor. Yeah. She has no idea. She <laughs> can't even. She 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 turns the beats around. You know. I love it. She's, she's a. I love but it. she's got a feel. Yeah, man. She's it's the feel. feel. It's the feel. That's right. It's not. Her, fe- yeah. her feel is as deep as mine, if not deeper, maybe deeper than Gee, Tony's. Are you serious? Know. Are you she kidding me? Sw- she, can, she can swing. I'm telling you. She's Get her on the bandstand, man. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't even. But she, I mean, she doesn't even know what she's doing. I know. She, I know. That's the beautiful part. Because, I, I mean, mean, that's the thing is that is that Tony, first of all, I think. He was so young that it was kind of awe-inspiring, but he was integrating all these different, you know, sort of beats. But you had Grady Tate and Joe Jones and, and, and you know, I mean, the, there were so many street scholars around that, I mean, whatever, music was not coming out of the academy at that time. So, uh, well, t- well, Tony, turned, Tony turned the page. You know, he did turn the he page. The he page. did play with an urgency. Yeah, and, and again, the urgency was there. I, I, I wonder... Yeah. Well, I want to, you know, we have a game on this program called Name That Voice. Uh, having a ball here with Joe Hunt. I'm going to put this uh, this voice in, this interview in, and then we'll come back and, and break it down, all right? Okay, good. Yeah, I was, and and also Bebop. And they, they were, uh, you know, there was a kind of fluent interchange between, uh, between idioms going on. I mean, you have to consider James Jamerson, who was the iconic, R and B bass player uh, considered himself a jazz musician and kind of started recording at Motown uh, grudgingly. Uh, he wanted to be Paul Chambers, just like everybody else. Um, and the, the 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 vocabularies were 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 cross referencing all the time. The uh, the the early R and B drummers like Panama Francis, for instance, were were you know veterans of the big band scene, and just kind of moved into the recording studio because there there was a window of opportunity there because there was money to be made, uh, um, and be, and because the music was wasn't bad, it wasn't inauthentic, it wasn't exactly jazz, but it but it was uh, <laughs> it was deeply moving. Uh, heartfelt music, and there was no, you know, there was no dishonor in 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 playing that music at all. I uh, I'm I'm deeply grateful that I that I that I experienced that, uh, and I just as I'm sure Coltrane is was grateful that he walked the bar at at one time. It's it's good for you. Well, you so, know, they... all right, Mr. Hunt, you know who that is. No, I don't. Who is it? That's a, a dear friend of yours, uh, Steve Swallow. Oh, Steve. Yeah, oh, that God, was... I didn't recognize the voice. It's from December, my first interview with him from December 2017. And, 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 and this is another issue that I wanted you to talk about is that um, in modern jazz, and I hate labels and I keep using them, but um, the blues was right alongside the jazz when you were coming up. And you can feel that deeply. Right. And I feel today this virtuosic, this need for virtuosity or this pet, this penchant for it has led jazz to, uh, the, there's a classicalization of jazz uh, that is troubling for me because jazz was, it was right alongside the blues. And the, and, and the clip I actually wanted to play for you was Swallow talking about playing in the ghettos of New Haven with all the, you know, Vernon Biddle and all these, you know, legendary cats, but he was playing R&B. You know, and they were playing blues, right. and and the, so the vocabulary was bigger. And I just want you to riff on that any way you want. Is is is? Do you hear the blues was right alongside the jazz when you were coming up, and it made the music so intoxicating because there was a mood and an urgency to it. Whereas today, the virtuosity has made it more classicalized. And I just I want you to riff on that. Well, I agree with you pretty much. Um, uh, I. That the uh, younger kids are very interested in how they play. Yes, they're much more interested in their shit, their stuff. Sorry, than it's okay. playing playing well with someone else. You know, for example, my amateur students now, 
they don't know any better. So I teach them to listen to each other, and they do. <laughs> right? I love it. Whereas I taught at New England Conservatory for four years, and my last year or five, I forget, my last year there, I had an ensemble, and they could. I taught taught them for a year, and they was they they seldom listened to each other. They each one was like virtuistic, you know, but they they couldn't listen together, you know, because they were wow. too much into their wow their hunt hunt. Now you're cooking hunt. That's really a revelatory. Well, but that also speaks to the fact that there's. So why do you think that is? So is, is it, the, is it because is the goal? what is the goal? What is the goal? What right. are you doing it for? Right. What are you doing it? What are your intentions? Are you doing yeah. It to impress yeah. somebody? Are you doing it to play faster? Are you? I mean, you can do that. You can drumming. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole school of drumming, which is all just just a drummer, you know, just a drum set guy who's a drum maniac and just plays by himself and goes faster and faster and hipper and hipper and you know, and that's it. That's the end of it. But you know, I I go back to like two people playing a duet, playing together, listening to one another and trying to make each other sound good you know so we're we're kind of losing that in the mix you know is that one of the uh, lessons really... that is that one of the lessons that someone like wes or even maybe non-verbally they they, they said it, it's really about scotty lafaro it's about having a conversation it's not about when you just listen to the music right you listen to the music when you listen to scott and paul famodian and bill evans oh my god classic trios, oh my god they're all listening to each other you know, they're not just on their own. You know, so, uh, Scotty almost, he pushes the envelope. He almost is, you know. But he's always listening to the drums, you know, and, and so forth, you know. So virtuosity should always be combined with this, uh, this ability to, to, to uh, flatter the other musician that you're playing with. Every note we play should make the next guy sound good, like on a basketball team or something. They, it's not all about one cap, right? You're a team. You're it's very simple that concept and we've kind of lost that in this individual you know uh search for for excellence or whatever you call it which is impressive i mean there's a lot of young players who are really scary they can play their rear end off you know but but can they can they play with another person you know? <laughs> yeah well i mean i mean in dugu chancellor the late great in dugu chancellor i mean denny sywell was so at a it, so it, it must echo contemporary life to some degree, you know. Well, I, I think, think there's one word. Different. There's one word that, that's, and I think it, it is epitomized in this. Because I also know cats that have come out of New England Conservatory, for instance, that are like incredible listeners and are gatekeepers. Oh, it, you know, oh in, yeah, it's a great school. It's a great, great school. I, I don't need to. No, 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 no. I know that. No, school. I dig. I'm just saying, like, it, it, it's astounding to me that collectively, um, after a year, this ensemble was still not listening to each other. And the one word that keeps coming into my, my zeitgeist is, is the ego. I mean, the ego has, exactly. you know, that's, it's ego. Exactly. There you go, Mr. Feinberg. All right. <laughs> Sign it. me up. You no, I mean, it's just like, it's like, it's like, and I think that speaks to the fact in, in some ways there's a desperation out there to, to say, look at me, look at me, look at me, because there's not the amount of opportunities and gigs available anymore um you know i think people have to feel like they have to stand out because you know i it just i just know and i know you weren't like i mean you actually were i, I i'm not sure was radio registry going on when you were in new york or did you when you moved to new york yeah yeah so i mean like yeah i was a me- i was a member yeah. of course you were you know and it's like dude you could get ahead i mean you could play you'd be getting you go to jim and andy's um, you know, whatever, wait for the phone to ring. Um, and truthfully, you, with the cost of living, you could uh, play a few uh, uh, studio gigs, jingles, commercials, and you could get ahead. Uh, I mean, and you could play the music you wanted to play. And, and now that doesn't exist because we're under this sort of guise. I, I guess the question is, do you still feel that a musician is viewed in western culture as a viable livelihood no i don't think so yeah exactly no that's another problem yeah big problem big problem i mean back to uh, charlie percep i mean it is sort of a perfect storm you know of all these things coming together like like uh, like you work i mean they're they're playing for car fare or hamburgers you know or beers right no no union you know and uh, there's uh, it's just a terrible situation uh, for for work, uh, 
and and in addition, you know, the old days, not only the, you know, you sort of uh, pointed out a period of the Jim and Andy period in New York, but sure. uh, during that period and prior to that period, there were lots of traveling bands, big bands, huge touring circuit, absolutely. And and guys like my age, we'd go out on a band tour, you know, or Harold, you know, like Harold went in his interview, he talks about playing for singers, you know, exactly. there were, there were gigs where you, you could, you could go out and, and, and come back, you know, you wouldn't, you don't want to leave New York too long. Somebody would take your gigs. <laughs> but I mean, there were, there, there were jobs, you know, there were, there were gigs to do, you know, shows, Broadway shows. I used to do subs for different people, you know, there, there was, there, 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 there was work, you know. And uh, the, that work, because of uh, of technology and so on, you know, has, has has disappeared. You know, we don't have show work like we did before. Uh, it's very limited. Uh, you know, any kind of TV jingles are all done with synthesizer now, like you mentioned. Uh, it's gone. Well, it's and gone. also, this work is your. I mean, this is uh, you know, I, I I'm not doing this. I, mean, I do this show for promotion. This is not about preservation. This is uh, strictly about like. Um, recognizing that 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 music is unquantifiable and we live in a data-driven time so if you can't quantify something then automatically it's assumed well how we can't determine it must not be worth anything so you can pay Mm. you can pay to play or you can play for the door i mean that has always been historically a classic line for a jazz cat is playing for the door but you know i mean i i get that i'm not naive about that but the point is that in terms of jazz or whatever that word means to you or I, I mean, you know, I mean, Billy Cobham and I have a deep relationship and he talks, George Cables and him, uh, they'd show up at this place on Broadway on Saturday mornings and, you know, Roland Hanna and Grady Tate and, and, uh, and I forget who the bass player was, or, and Chris White would be there doing teaching rhythm section trios to younger kids and they had been up all night playing music but it was like this idea of passing it forward you know getting mm, good, get, good for them yeah good getting the them. memo and 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 um and and the propensity and the and the different kinds of gigs uh and learning how to play as a unit um is is really i mean there's so much going on um but I think we've become infatuated. And then as an audience member, myself as a journalist, as somebody who just wants, as Rockalon Bob Moses has said so eloquently, who just loves to let the body dance. I mean, I don't know how we've also reached a point in our culture where we've we come to this idea of, even Swallow says that, I'll send you these interviews, you know, he plays jazz in settings where people now come and are, are we, we have been trained to sit and watch and stare at people's virtuosity, like you were talking about, as opposed to going in, into the, the bars, Charlie Neville, Sonny Rollins, John Coltrane, they walked cannonball. Those guys were in the bars, man. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've been in different parts of the country seeing bands that are playing free music, whatever, there's playing music, and someone will come up to me and tap, and I'm dancing. And it's not traditional dance music, but I'm, I can let the body dance, and they're tapping me on the shoulder saying, Excuse me, you're blocking my view. Can you move? And the bar's half full. I just said, you know, can you? Why are you sitting down? Music is made for dancing. You know, I mean, there's a lot of fundamental things that have happened here, that that we we are in a perfect storm, and we are. But it's it's something that still can be met with enlightenment and wisdom from you guys because you learned from the original masters about how to have a legitimate conversation i want to you know i want to play one tune this is a this is a name that tune you're on this tune i want you to we'll listen to it and then we'll come back and break it down all right Thank you. 
Jake Feinberg Show brought to you by Abbott Taylor Jewelers, Craig Pretzinger of Allstate Insurance, and Dr. Diggs of Butch Diggs Dental, and we wish them the happiest of holidays. I'm so happy that they sponsor this show so that I can play tunes like that for the maniac Joe Hunt. Do you do you remember do you know what that tune is? Sure, aesthetic. That's Eric Dolphy. One sixth yeah. one this is one sixth aesthetic. That was the name of the tune. Um, Joe Hunt on drums. Steve Swallow on bass, the amazing Dol- Eric Dolphy on alto sax and bass clarinet, Dave Baker, the aforementioned Baker, the insane, the man who took, who was responsible for avant-garde music in, in the West Coast, Don Ellis, and of course the legendary George Russell on piano of 1961. And that was the thing, and, and I want to wrap part one with you on this, because we haven't even talked about miking techniques of the old recordings and all this stuff, but... There were cats like Norman Granz and Oren Keepnews and people that basically said their motto for this music was maybe it will only sell two copies, but this is what my label stands for. Riverside. Yeah. All these it yeah. they didn't it was not all about the bottom line. Again, people had people were making money, so they were okay. Everybody was getting ahead. Hal Blaine, the Wrecking Crew, they were getting ahead. It didn't matter that Dennis Wilson was getting credit for playing drums on the Beach Boy records. Hal Blaine was buying new cars. He didn't care. The point is, Norman Granz, Oren Keepnews, I just know that, thank God that this happened in this period of our civil, in our history because they didn't care if it sold 10 copies. It was what their label stood for. And that, to me... Yeah, yeah, there was, there was integrity. Yes, that's see we're we're hitting on these key words now, Joe Hunt. I mean, and I want to say just just your you've been so humble to let me you know to 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 hang with me and go through this this diatribe of of where we're at. But I mean, I mean, what is your tell me what your silver lining is for the future of music live, especially live music, because you made a very good point. There is no touring circuit for jazz anymore in the states, and that's a big deal. Well, well. Okay, just to back up a minute, I yeah. mean, what we heard there with George George's band, that little Eric Dolphy solo, uh, terrific solo, um, that's a good example of what George used to call the chromatic universe. <laughs> Please tell me what that means. Well, you know, it means that at some level, Eric Eric's solo is a wonderful example. He's able to play whatever notes he feels like he wants to play in the moment. And yet, it matches with the changes in the composition of uh, of "Love for Sale," which is the song that that you know aesthetic is based on. Unbelievable! And it works. Unbelievable! It works. He took a standard and tune. System, and that's so brilliant. George's system, yeah. yeah, George's system of the of the uh, Lydian chromatic um, organization allows. That's the goal of it: to be able to play whatever note you want and have it work. And it was, you know, and Coltrane and many, the, the ones that that we admire now, they were students of George. You know, they they studied this concept. This is not just some kind of a, you know, uh, ragtag idea. This is a book, you know. <laughs> but I, but I, want, I want this is so important when you the chromatic universe is, is essentially yeah. because because Dolphy understood the standards he was able to incorporate a love for sale theme and variation within this original tune 
Well, first of all, he was a genius. I mean, well, absolutely. Started, but, and so and so was George. Yeah. Dude, and and Joe Hunt, Steve Swallow and Joe Hunter, just as I mean, whatever you guys were cooking the groove, man. That that is breakneck, we breakneck. We, we, we were glad to be there. Damn right, yeah. You, you, it was a get, but I mean, and I think Oren was the type of cat where he was like, "Hey, man, this is your session. I'm gonna." That's the other part of it. This meddling of people who have a job title all of a sudden meddle. The problem now is they think they know. The music too. Orrin Keep News was it's your session, it's Georgia's right. session. Go to go go burn, you know. And then he did that on the West Coast too. Right. He stayed out of the yeah, way. But that record, that record never sold sold much. I, I don't I don't imagine. I don't know. It's probably worth fifty dollars now. It's such a burning badass. And look at the truck. Oh yeah, it's yeah. great. It's a great record. But I'm just saying in its day, you know, I don't think it probably sold very well. And probably Orrin, I wouldn't want to speak for him, but my guess is he probably didn't even know what the heck we were doing. You he, know? I, you know he what? Knew, I wouldn't. It, it would have been. I would have just been dancing. He he knew it was something important. He he exactly. believed in George exactly, you know? and he let George go. And whether, like you said earlier, whether the record sold or not, he recorded it, you know. And uh, he also recorded an album on my recommendation, which I one of my favorite albums that I ever did. It's called A Day in the City with Don Friedman and Chuck Israel. Oh, the, all these recording. cats, man. And, uh, and that and that record was a real bomb, but it's a beautiful record. What, I mean, dude, but see, life. don't say that. It's not, I, This stuff, you know... Hunt, no, I mean, it didn't sell. Well. I know, but I mean, like that. If, but let me tell you something, man. But, you, but he he recorded it, you know, and he and we were none of we were not we were nobodies then. We were not jazz stars, but he believed in it, you know. He he, I, I took him a a uh, demo record that we did. I said, Orrin, this is a nice trio I'm producing with. You think you could do something for us? He gave us a record date, man. I mean, that's the kind of guy he was, you know. He 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 believed in in in, in young people and their their future and uh he put up with a lot of stuff from the bebop guys too that that's another story but he was a very important person well i'm i just i mean and also like you can say it was a bomb at the time based on success which is a relative term and in our culture we quantify it by maybe i shouldn't no but i guess i want to tell you something joe what i want to say is this it's cosmic that we've connected because someone in 50 years or 60 or 80 years when we're both left this planet We'll hear this interview, and if it inspires one person, if it touches one person's heart to pick up the drumsticks or to pick up the saxophone and be themselves, then we've done our job. And that's the unquantifiable part. Of, I mean, I realize that we live in this reality where, okay, you got to put food on the table, you got to feed every. Okay, get it. But you know what? I've also resided to the fact that my first book came out, which I'll send you, and I really want you to. I want you to dig it. Um, but I've also reconciled the fact that. So much of this stuff that I'm doing will live on long after I'm gone. And I think that's the way you have to look at the music you've made at, with these cats because that's what Oren recognized was that I don't necessarily, you know, from a theory point of view, I can't, these guys are stone geniuses, but you know what? It's going to be important in the future when civilization, culture and civilization are at stake. And we, we're kind of near at that precipice right now, whether, you, whether we know it or not. So It could be, yeah. Listen, um, I'm up against the clock. We, let's do set two after the new year. I mean, we got we got a lot more to do, Joe. We we I mean, I know we, we went on a journey today. Okay. Yeah, but um, yeah, you know, this this was good. This was fun, man. I appreciate it, dude. It was great to hang with you, Joe. And um, and I'll get you a copy of this later. I'll be transcribing some of the more salient stories and putting them up on Facebook too. That's the other part of the Jake Feinberg show. You got to diversify the medium. You know, it's not just audio. All right, well, we'll. we'll well, stay in touch. I'm gonna I'm gonna email you. Or I'm gonna send you the uh, CD of John Pierce immediately. Imme- no, I want the, the the one from the old the 50s. I got to hear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you'll dig it. <laughs> All right, yo, happy New Year, Joe. We'll talk real soon. All right, thanks, man. Be good, man. Later. You too. Bye. bye. What a cat, Joe Hunt. Wrapping things up here on the Jake Feinberg Show. We got a couple more interviews in 2019. Dusty Ray Simmons after the break.